Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Today, we're going to be discussing an issue which is really difficult, but also really current, Jewish war ethics. Given the recent events in Israel and Gaza, there's a really present need to understand what the Jewish tradition has to say about war. And today I'm joined by Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody, who's written a book on exactly that topic. Actually, he started writing it before the events of October 7th, but it's really come to bear, so we're very lucky to have him today. He's a very prominent writer on Jewish ethics, including having his writing cited by the Israeli Supreme Court. He's also a columnist for the Jerusalem Post and the executive director of Emetai, which is an organization that helps guide Jewish families through healthcare moral issues. Today, we're here to talk about his most recent book, Ethics of Our Fighters, A Jewish View of War and Morality. I hope you find this conversation as interesting and instructive as I did and that you'll be able to use it to help navigate the current climate and debates surrounding Israel and Gaza. So with no further ado, I really hope you enjoy. Rabbi Brody, welcome to the show. I'm so delighted to have you on. So great to be with you. So as I think I mentioned to you before, one of our previous guests was Rabbi Mir Soloveitchik. And in some ways, your work on this book kind of reminds me of our conversation because he had written this book about Jewish statesmanship. The challenge being there was not a Jewish state for around 2000 years. Suddenly there is. It brings up new challenges. And similarly, with Jewish war ethics, there was no Jewish army until 1948. And so I'm wondering, just to kind of kick us off here before we get into the nitty gritty, does that change the kinds of topics that Jewish war ethics deal with? Are there ways that that makes Jewish war ethics distinctive as compared with other traditions? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, when I started writing this book, a friend of mine who's deeply sympathetic to the Jewish tradition said to me, wow, that's going to be a very short book. (laughs) (laughs) And he said it with good reason, because he said Jews just didn't deal with these dilemmas for many centuries. And and in some ways, some people saw that as a blessing, because warfare was so brutal and so difficult for so many centuries. Maybe there's a slight advantage to that in some ways. But of course, being powerless is a moral problem. It's not just a strategic problem, it's a moral problem. And what, one of the things I found interesting is that in spite of the fact that Jews didn't have to deal with these questions so much uh, on a day-to-day basis, on a real level, there were some really interesting conversations and discussions over the years that certainly can enlighten some of the dilemmas we're dealing with today. The one thing I should add, though, is that the conversation really begins before 1948 because Jews are allowed into Western country, Western armies, um, sort of in the modern era, and particularly uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries, but the, the ethical discussions really come up in the 20th century with World War I, followed by, of course, the advent of Zionism. So I'm gonna try to make this roughly chronological. We're gonna start all the way back with the Bible and move through to current events in Gaza. So put a quick pin in World War One. Let's start with the Torah. <laughs> um, so just kind of for fun before this interview, I looked up, I kind of have my own views about which passages in the Bible are particularly violent, but I looked up what are the most violent passages and I found this absolutely hilarious article from Huffington Post called Violence in the Bible, Greatest Hits. <laughs> um, and I mean, it was it was funny for a couple of reasons. Um, I mean, one, there was like this long list of various passages. And then it said, I couldn't pick just 10 runner ups. And the first runner up was the crucifixion of Jesus. And now as a Christian, I'm a little offended that that didn't make the main list. Um, but, you know, the Book of Joshua comes up so frequently in these kinds of discussions. I think Netanyahu has listed it as his favorite book. The word that this Huffington Post article used for it was genocide, which is a very charged word, especially given current events. 
Um, how do you think about when you're kind of looking at the Old Testament and the pretty violent struggles that are recorded there, what those have to say about Jewish war ethics? Yeah, no, it's a great question and certainly one that uh, has become really relevant because Prime Minister Netanyahu, in discussing Hamas, made a reference to Amalek, the ancient nation, which according to the Bible, Jews have to wipe out. And uh, that was brought up in the Hague saying, oh, this might, you know, must show intent, which is a really ridiculous claim. But, but nonetheless, um, you see how the invoking of the Bible can be a loaded uh, topic and it can bring about certain connotations, which I think none of us really want to have. And there's no doubt that there are some biblical passages which are particularly violent and most importantly, don't really promote restraint ethical restraint, any other restraint. I think that's really the key point. And you know, one of the things I think rabbinic writers in the 20th century, uh, but even beforehand, had to deal with is there are a lot of ethical questions that come up when you think about these issues. And it's not just because the Jews underwent the Holocaust that we're concerned about biblical commandments for genocide. We, we thought about this issue beforehand. And I think you know, one of the things I try to show in the book is that there are a lot of answers to how we deal with this. Uh, but primarily to understand, and I think it's a very clear statement, those aren't normative passages anymore when it comes to uh, emulating that type of warfare. Meaning whatever the seven Canaanite nations that lived in the times of Joshua, those are long gone. Those commandments aren't relevant. Same thing with the nation of Amalek. And the many other strategies along the li- these lines that have sort of uh, neutralized, not even sort of, I should say, really completely neutralized those commandments. So I think that's very important to keep in mind, um, and I think it's very important for us to take with us. However, there is something really important about the biblical passages which teach us the importance of uprooting evil and of recognizing the fact that there is good and evil, and evil cannot be um, tolerated in this world when it's of a certain type. And I think that's something which the West has sort of lost sight of, that there might be such a thing that just has to be destroyed and unfortunately, sometimes can't be uh, dismantled peacefully, and we have to be willing to fight for that. And, and that's something which I think the biblical, you know, heritage can can still be very relevant for in that respect. Given, I mean, Judaism is not a sola scriptura tradition, and I'm sure there's a lot of commentary in Talmud about those kinds of passages in Joshua and Psalms, which are known for being quite violent. Just kind of as a very quick overview for people who have not kind of engaged with that and whose only exposure to this is just kind of, you know, the bare words preserved in the Old Testament. What are some kind of takeaways or are there things that the Talmudic tradition adds to that? Yeah, no, it's it's a great um it's a great question because you're right. Judaism is full of commentaries over the generations. And I, I think that probably the two biggest uh, additions that the Talmudic literature adds is the first of all, that we should always ask for peace. We should always seek peace before going to war, which is an important statement, limitation of war being of a last resort. That's a very important phenomenon, which we need to really keep in mind. And um, you might not feel that from the Bible at all times. And it's important that the Talmud really introduces that. In fact, the Talmud introduces these ideas as being the ideas that initiated with Moses and Joshua. I don't think that's an accident. I think it was very important for the Talmud to make that point that there's a certain type of continuity with the biblical tradition, even though I, I suppose from a historical critical perspective, you could say otherwise. And I think the second sort of sentiment that comes up in the Talmud already, and certainly added by later commentators, is this idea that while we want to win, it's important to win, it's very, very important to win, there's also an importance to never lose sight of the fact that all humans were created in the image of God. And that's a very important biblical lesson, which is easily forgotten in the midst of war. And for that reason, there are these Talmudic imperatives, which again, you, you won't see in the Bible per se, but are attributed to the Bible, in which the Talmud declares, for example, that when you lay siege on a city, you should leave open the fourth side, you should have an evacuation corridor, so a people can be spared. That's a very interesting lesson, which you know has actually some interesting contemporary implications as well. But you would have found that if you were just reading the Bible straight up. And that, that really gets added by later commentators. And I think that's one of the 
beautiful things about the Jewish tradition, not unique to us per se, but that we have these layers of generations that add unique commentaries to our biblical tradition. So I'll skip ahead a bit because I'm really happy that you brought up the fourth wall example um, because it did strike me as something that was so distinctive that I hadn't heard of before when I read your book. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess talk a little bit more about the modern implications. I mean, the first thing that occurs to me are, you know, these arguments about utilities in Gaza, like water and electricity, um, because, I mean, Israel would be fairly happy for the Palestinians to leave through a theoretical fourth wall, but, you know, the neighboring countries don't necessarily want to accept them. So what are kind of the implications of that for the current fight? Yeah, it's, it's hard to know how to apply it as a firm law, but certainly as a principle. I mean, this idea says that we want to allow people to evacuate. It's partly actually a strategic issue because it's a lot easier to conquer a place when people don't want to fight to the bitter end. And they say to themselves, okay, we can leave. Now, if you think about Gaza right now, I mean, Israel doesn't have a siege, even though it's sometimes spoken like that, but Israel doesn't have, currently have a siege on Gaza. There is, a, besides the fact there's a lot going in, humanitarian measures and whatnot, but there's a fourth side, which is governed by Egypt. And somewhat, I, I mean, I understand on the political level, but somewhat mysteriously to me that the world tolerates it. The Egyptians have no interest and no willingness to allow refugees, non-combatants, to you know, take, uh, take uh, harbor in their territory. Uh, I don't know of other examples when we've tolerated this. I mean, look what happened in Syria. I mean, all of Europe has been transformed because of all the refugees that came from Syria and other places for that matter. And no one said, oh, we're going to close our borders and everyone's got to stay within the, you know, the borders of Syria. So uh, you know, that, I think, is a really... Uh, an interesting moral question, which I think the world has to ask itself when it comes to the Egyptian behavior here. But uh, that said, I do think that there is something powerful of saying that even in the midst of war, we should keep in mind a humanitarian vision here, which is a moral vision, which says that even when you want to win, and winning is a moral interest, right? It's not just a matter of a political interest. It's a moral imperative here. But nonetheless, even when you want to win, don't forget that there are non-combatants here who don't need to be killed. And as much as you can, you know, then we should try to spare those people. And I think that is a very, very difficult balance, particularly when you're fighting an enemy like Hamas, which uses human shields. So it gets really difficult to avoid that. But this notion, at least a forewarning of allowing people to evacuate before you bomb a city when possible, I think is a very, very important application of this. And it's interesting when it first came up, this notion of the fourth side. I mean, Jews didn't have to have, didn't lay sieges for many centuries. But it comes up in 1982 and the siege on Beirut when Israel's fighting Lebanon. And the chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, who's a very militant person, I mean, he's known as an army guy, he was the chief rabbi of the army for many years, publicly declares and says Israel needs to create an evacuation corridor. 100,000 people left Beirut because of, not only because of him, but because of this message. So I think there's something very powerful for that. Mm. Um, But again, keeping in mind, there is also this moral imperative to win as well, and you're going to have to balance those principles. Talk a little bit more about the moral imperative to win. I think we kind of take it for granted. Well, you know, it's interesting. uh, We sort of take it for granted that we want to win, yeah. But we assume that's a matter of like strategy or interest. Yeah. And I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that winning is a moral imperative to defend our people, in Israel's case right now, to allow the citizens of Israel to live in peace and security. And for that matter, I think many people in Israel feel that it's also more imperative for many of Gaza's residents who are suffering under the tyranny of Hamas. Um, so there is this sense, you know, and a lot of times the way it's being sort of, you know, um, presented is, well, on the one hand, you want to be humanitarian. On the other hand, you really want to win. No, there's something that's humanitarian about wanting to win because you're trying to defeat what you believe to be an evil enemy. And um, the inability, I think, in many ways for the West to fight terror and asymmetric warfare to fight Islamic fundamentalists and fundamentals of all sorts, but certainly the type that we fought in Iraq or Afghanistan or and now in Gaza, 
the inability to say that there's a moral imperative to defeat this is really a big problem. I mean, we understood that we had a moral imperative to defeat the Soviets during the Cold War. And thankfully, that remained a Cold War, right? Not a nuclear holocaust, right? So that was obviously a great fear, of course, but there was an understanding then that we understood in the West that there's a moral imperative to defeat communism. And I'm concerned that we've lost sight of the fact that there might be a moral imperative to defeat these enemies. And it's not just the cases of Hamas or Hezbollah or Al-Qaeda or ISIS, but can come up in other scenarios as well as we look forward in the 21st century to different types of threats, whether it's Russia or China or other places. We need to recognize that there's a moral imperative in order to win here. And so, you know, I think you're right. People feel that intuitively, yeah, of course, we, we should win, right? That's what we want to do. But it's important to frame, I think, in moral terms. Yeah, 100%. And I'm going to permit myself, people who listen to this podcast know I'm an ancient history person, and it's very difficult for me to extract <laughs> myself from the ancient world. So I'm going to give myself one last question, and then we're going to jump forward in time. Um, but we're talking about sieges. Um, and I found your discussion of the siege of Masada really interesting because it is so, I mean, well looked upon in Jewish history. It's a huge tourist site. People love visiting it. It's in some ways, especially as someone more in Roman history, it feels like a kind of the honorable Roman thing of, you know, commit suicide before you're captured, um, which comes up over and over again in Roman history. Um, and yet, from your perspective, it's not an example at all to look to. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, there's this myth of Masada happens in 70 CE when the Jews are fleeing Jerusalem and as the, the, as the way the story goes, that's told by Josephus, that the Jewish warriors of Masada decide to commit suicide rather than being taken captive or defeated by the Romans. And, and it's interesting, in the Jewish tradition, it really doesn't appear that story too much. It's not really one that's promoted so much over the centuries. The story gets revived in many ways by early Zionists who are looking for some precedent for warriors and for fighters in the Jewish tradition. But, you know, if you think about it, it's sort of a weird model. It's not the ideal model. They lose. They all die. I mean, that's not really what we want to think about in terms of the models we have. But you're right. It became this huge Zionist symbol. And many, both in terms of the general political leaders in Israel, the Zionist leaders, and some rabbis were very much interested in promoting that model of because of, it gave us a model of fighters. But others said, like, really, is this who we want our model to be? And at the end of the day, you know, wouldn't it have been better if they had survived? And maybe the moral imperative of those moments is to stay alive. And so you know, I think that's a, it's important to, I, 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 I have mixed feelings about the Masada legend, as you saw from the, the book. And I think it's important to keep those two perspectives in mind because it's always important to recognize the fact that the goal of fighting is to live. It's not to die. And that's part of the imperative that we have. We have to always keep in mind that framework. Our goal is our defense. Our goal is our security. Our goal is peace. And so if your model is going to be a case where everyone goes down fighting, and not even go down fighting this case, goes down by killing each other in suicide, that's not a great model as a national legacy. You said something very provocative in the book that it was more similar to Arab tactics, actually, in, in recent history than, than Jewish-Israeli tactics. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are definitely uh, people who make this analogy sometimes to some of the uh, battles in which various Arab armies made. They, made. they made it sort of their own Masada as a war in different cases. And if you think about it in those terms, you'd say, like, why does it have to be that way? You know, why we didn't want that. The Israeli side didn't want to turn it into their Masada. Now, admittedly, the Romans are different. The ancient Romans are certainly different. So, you know, it's hard to make that comparison. But there's no doubt that I don't think we want to see this as a model of people dying, everyone dying on you know, different sides, and certainly of, of the Jews or the Israelis dying as well. That, that's not a really great model for us. So I, I you know, I, I do love ancient history like yourself. <laughs> and uh, But I think we have to be careful about which models we actually see are stuff that we want to emulate. And the same thing is true about the biblical stories as well. 
So I promise that was the last one. We're going to skip all the way forward to World War One. I. Um, I was very interested because when people think of Jewish history, I mean, World War Two kind of immediately, there's just not much discussion of Jewish involvement in World War One. So can you talk a little bit about that, about the kind of precedence that that set for modern history and, you know, Jewish involvement in war? Yeah, I mean, it's really remarkable. You're right. When we think of the great world wars, uh, we certainly think of the Holocaust and the implications of World War II as being the greater, you know, one war that had a greater impact on Judaism and Jewish history, which is certainly true. But if you look at the statistics from World War One, you see that well over, you know, a million people, Jews, excuse me, were fighting as soldiers in World War One and on both sides. Right? And there's, that's also an interesting phenomenon, which is always this great fear in sort of Jewish tradition of you have a situation where Jews are killing other Jews on behalf of the countries in which they're living in. And that's a very uncomfortable situation. And it, it's interesting that World War I, of course, is not seen as this great war. And if you look about look back, I mean, I think the way you look back today, is like, why was that war fought? And it was a terrible war on a lot of different levels. But in many ways, it was the war in which Jews proved to themselves and to others um, that we could be warriors, which was always this anti-Semitic trope, of course, over many centuries that Jews couldn't fight. And that was significant, I think, for a Jewish self-image in that respect. I mean, the other element of World War I, which is interesting, is that Jews suffered tremendous anti-Semitism, uh, pogroms and other types of incidents in the midst of that war uh, in very, very difficult ways, and immediately right after the war as well. As you know, right after November 11th, there are pogroms going on all through uh, Poland, Lithuania, other areas like this. So it, it's really a difficult war in which Jews start to fight and start to think about, like, what is this whole concept of warfare? And is this something we want to be a part of? But they're deeply involved in it and suffer from it in many ways. I don't want to say we suffer more than others per se, you know, because obviously World War I is a terrible war and many people suffered in it, but we certainly suffered in a very acute manner and it shapes in a lot of ways um, different attitudes towards, towards war afterwards. Explain a little bit how. How, how would it have been different without a World War I? Well, first of all, there are some people that are very much inclined to think that we should choose pacifism. Right. I mean, world War I was so bad. And it, well, there's nothing like a terrible world war uh, to drive people to pacifism. It didn't take off too much in Jewish circles, but there's certainly a strand of that uh, that uh, emerges. And I think the other area which World War I pushed people for is this hope that we can create a new international world order, international law, the League of Nations, military conventions and whatnot. And somehow that this will solve the problem of war or eliminate war or at least create a sense of justice after war. And there are many Jews who are deeply involved in the international law movement in the 20s and 30s and beyond, and once the United Nations is found as well. And one of the interesting stories I tell in the book is of this rabbi who is born in the land of Israel, has to leave and ends up in Hoboken, New Jersey, of all places, actually. Uh, not the place you'd always think of as great rabbinic scholars living there. I hope I don't insult any fans from Hoboken, but it's a wonderful city. But not necessarily the place you would think of where that rabbinic wisdom is emerging from. And one of the things he writes about there is the importance of taking on these new ethical mores about restraints on war, but also recognizing the limits of what international bodies are going to create. Because at the end of the day, these international bodies are being ruled by countries which have political interests and interests are going to trump in the end. And I think those words are, he was referring to the League of Nations and the mandate system, but those words are prophetic. If you look at what's gone on in international law in the subsequent decades, and I don't think there's such a great history of how much international law and these international justice systems how many um, genocides and attempted genocides and other horrific uh, wars have been stopped or have, have had been brought to justice afterwards. It's really a failed movement in many ways, uh, tragic in some ways, but we should be realistic to that. But there's no doubt that great wars make people think there's got to be some solution. Can't we all get along and let's create some system? 
And that had a big impact on the way um, many people, Jews and non-Jews alike, looked upon how we can deal with the issues of war. Yeah, I mean, and this pacifism strain is in funny ways. I mean, maybe you'll disagree with me. I'm curious. In funny ways, very much still alive. But skipping forward to World War II-ish, um, you have this amazing quote in your book from Gandhi that just made my jaw drop to the floor, that when Jews wrote to him complaining of the Holocaust and of uprisings um, in the Middle East and in Palestine, he recommended that they offer themselves to be shot or thrown into the Dead Sea, this is a direct quote, without raising a little finger against them. Um, And I was like, oh my gosh, but it's just such an interesting example of how, I mean, one strategy can be very effective one place and not another. I wonder, A, what you think of that, and B, if you think that there's some kind of intellectual heritage that goes from kind of Gandhi's stance on anti-Semitic violence up to the way a lot of people are now reacting to Israel's relationship with Gaza and West Bank. There's no doubt there's some connection. I don't know how to um, connect the dots per se, but there is this feeling of like, uh, you know, if you would just fight violence with peace, we could all get along. And uh, I, I think that that's part of that failure to recognize that there's evil in the world and evil needs to be fought. And Gandhi, you know, terribly failed in this moment. I mean, the, those letters that he wrote really don't age well. And they don't age well very quickly. Um, where, in fact, he's even written by people who are real peace activists, like Martin Buber, but others as well, who say to him, like, Gandhi, you have to understand sometimes, like, are we not supposed to fight Hitler? And, uh, and Gandhi's like, no. And, you know, I think there's just a real moral failure in that type of sentiment. And I know, of course, it's not as extreme today in many circles, but I do think that what is common to what Gandhi said and what some of the responses to Israel's behavior today is, is sort of like, well, you know, there are other ways of dealing with this. They're not so evil. We could talk this through. We can work this out. And that's just a moral failure to recognize that at times there's evil and needs to be eliminated. And what do you think, I mean, because I guess the counter argument would be, oh, well, you know, Gandhi had so much success with this approach. Martin Luther King had so much success with this approach. Um, you know, where would you kind of draw the line in terms of, you know, the different realities of why that approach could be successful in those places, but couldn't be successful I mean, either for the Jews during or immediately after World War II or currently? Yeah, I mean, you have to analyze each case, of course, and understand, um, you know, the differences. But at least in the Jewish case, both in the 40s, and I think it was pretty clear from October 7th, and unfortunately 2024 as well, um, you have a gen- you know, an army, an enemy that's really committed to destroying the Jewish people. I mean, that's the goal. You know, the Nazis certainly made that clear. They are making it clear for those who wanted to listen in the late 30s and early 40s. And I think if you look at Hamas's charter, for example, it's very clear. It's the destruction of the state of Israel. So you know, at some point, we just have to believe our enemies, that their intents are genuine. That they might be despicable and horrific, but they may actually be genuine about what their aims are. And when it becomes so clear that those aims are really what they want to accomplish, uh, we need to fight. And I think one of the difficult questions that we're going to have to deal with and continue to deal with, and Israel's thinking about this a lot with Iran and with Lebanon and Hezbollah and others, is when you know that the other side has such intentions, when do you act first? When do you do a preventative strike or a uh, or preemptive strike, depending on the situation? And um, that's a really difficult dilemma, of course, because you want to have war as a last resort, but it's not always easy to know when is when you're at the last resort. I think that one of the things we're going to look back on October 7th, there's going to be so many signs that Hamas gave, and Israel and others are going to say, wow, how do we miss that? And, and you know, that's one of those things we need to be looking for now and thinking about, which is, could we have done things differently? I think Americans think about that as well when it comes to September 11th. It's not like we didn't know Al-Qaeda didn't exist. We knew about them. 
right? You know, Clinton even does a couple of small scale military activities against them and whatnot. And of course, it's easy to look back in 2020 hindsight. But but one of those questions you always have to ask is when you look around the world, recognize who your potential enemies are, what their intents are, and what can you do to stop it before you get to that point? Yeah. And I think that's a really good transition into kind of the second half of the questions that, that I'd like to get through um, to talking about current events in Gaza. And there's just a, so many buzzwords that come up on either side. And I'm going to try to kind of move through some of them here. But preventative action is definitely an interesting one. And you actually discuss Machiavelli on it, um, which I very much appreciated, um, again, as a history person. Um, <laughs> but that uh, sometimes, you know, it it doesn't make sense to put war off is kind of his stance. And to me, I mean, the example Machiavelli is using is the Roman Empire. And I was kind of like, well, I can totally see how that could be the case if you're a superpower, that it might be cheaper to go to war now than to just sort of wait and have it be sort of twice as costly later. Um, but if you're a small nation and one mistake can be disastrous, I don't know if the same precept applies. Are there precepts that we can use to determine both when preventative action is morally justified and when it is pragmatically safe? Yeah. I mean, Machiavelli, of course, isn't so interested in ethical restraints. He no. just wants to <laughs> you know, he just wants to maintain power and uh, eliminate any threat at any point, wherever it's coming from. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe in that. Uh, but I do think that we have to ask ourselves, do we have an imminent threat? Do we have a grave threat? And how credible it is? And those three factors are really, really important to keep in mind. Um, if you th look back in recent Israeli history, Israel bombs the nuclear reactor both in Iraq and Osirak in 1981 and in Syria in 2017. Thank God. I mean, can you imagine if Khadam, you know, Saddam Hussein or Assad had nuclear weapons? What a disaster. And so those were cases where it wasn't imminent that they were going to get nuclear weapons, let alone use them. And yet those were grave threats and those were credible threats. So that's something that you know, I think we need to think uh, really hard about in terms of the Iranian example. Um, and when, you know, when it comes to other areas, let's say, I mean, I'm thinking about Israel because Israel is so easy to think about right now. When it comes to, let's say, Hezbollah on the Lebanese border, this is a very well-trained, well-equipped army. And uh, we're sort of at war already with them. I mean, there's been like a lot of shooting going back and forth, but it's a little low level right now. And you have to ask yourself, at what point do you say, like, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for them to do their own October 7th? Uh, you know, and so the one of those types of questions where, though, I think if Israel would say, we're going to take it now to Hezbollah, we're going to initiate hostilities, the world would be very unsympathetic to that whether it be President Biden or others. And that, of course, causes diplomatic problems for Israel as well. But that might be a real moral failure of the West to say, you know, oh, well, just because you, know, you feel this grave, incredible threat doesn't mean that you should be attacking. Well, no, you have a small country. And you have a small country, which, you know, which means it's very vulnerable in a lot of different ways, of course, you don't want to get into a, a bad war. You don't want to get into a war in which you don't have an end to it. You don't have an end game to it. But at the same time, there is this imperative. I mean, Israel's evacuated 100,000 plus people from its northern border area. Are those people going back until we deal with Hezbollah? I don't know if I would if I was living there. So uh, those are real issues that I think we have to think about. And I think the West just has to wake up to that reality that you cannot wait for the other side to attack, you have to sometimes initiate and take, you know, and be more proactive about dealing with those serious threats. Yeah, I, I mean, I think when you talk about knowing objectives, that really kind of hits the nail on the head of what's so concerning about the present situation that it's very difficult to envision kind of best case scenario emerging from Israeli action in Gaza. Um, how do you how do you think about that? Because um, it just it doesn't seem likely unless you engage in I mean really quite brutal action because the events of October seventh are so domestically popular in Gaza. 
Yeah, I mean, if you compare, let's say, Gaza and Lebanon, so it's a lot easier to feel like you have an end game in Lebanon. You push back Hezbollah, try to push them back beyond the Latani River, give a little bit of a buffer zone. There is sort of a clear end game there. Because there's, you have to deal with in Gaza, of course, is masses of civilian population. Um, and you also have to deal with the fact that it seems that the population, according to public opinion polls, is largely sympathetic to Hamas's actions. Now, of course, that does not make any random non-combatant a legitimate target. God forbid, I'm not suggesting that, of course. But you have this situation where you sort of wonder, let's say you get rid of Hamas's leadership. Now what? Does that mean you've eliminated the threat? You push back the threat? You know, what, what's the goal here? Um, and I, I think that that's a hard question which... Israeli leaders need to think about. I think, you know, Israeli citizens are starting to think a lot about this right now. Uh, I do think, though, it is important to keep in mind that there is a goal of making sure that we don't have a threat of attacks the way we had well before October 7th. I mean, Israel's border towns were facing rocket attacks all the time. And we have this Iron Dome, which is a great missile defense system. Thank God for that. But it's intolerable for people to have 15 seconds to run into a bomb shelter and hope for the best. And you can't have that situation. Uh, No country should tolerate that type of situation. So uh, I do think that uh, what is important is for Israel to create a situation where in Gaza, people understand that's intolerable. And it's only going to be that lesson I fear, I feel and fear is only going to be understood if the world makes the same point as well to Gaza and to the Palestinian people, which is to say you should live in peace and security in Gaza, but it cannot be that this is going to include occasional missile attacks on random Israeli citizens and cities. That, That just is intolerable. When the world makes that message clear, I think you'll find the Palestinian people will say, okay, we don't want this type of leadership. Right now, the world's not making that clear at all. Right now, the world is saying, okay, you guys did terrible things on October 7th. Let's try to come up with some two-state solution. Well, that's a big reward for terrorism right there. So I think that's part of the end game, which we have to also keep in mind is how do we create a situation where um, it's understood in Gaza that terror like this doesn't pay? Yeah, it's interesting that you put it in those terms because so much of, I mean, there's been so much back and forth about kind of the PR situation. Um, in your book, you call it the CNN effect, uh, but the way that the the public international view affects your military actions on the ground. And based on what you've said, I mean, is that then a case to be quite a bit more moderate in how you deal with Gaza because the world might look on it more kindly? Yeah, it's funny. I called it the CNN effect, but it sort of dates me a little bit. I'm not even that holy, right? I should have called it the Instagram effect or the TikTok effect. (laughs) I suddenly made myself a little bit younger in in the book. Um, There's no doubt that uh, the way images are portrayed is a really harm. I mean, one sense, of course, is positive because it, it does highlight for us the tragedy of war. And we should never lose sight of that. And I am thankful for that, that we have exposure to such images because those are difficult images and should make us think twice about what's going on. But at the same time, um, those images of hardship and and difficult, tragic images don't tell us anything about the moral um, questions at hand. And that's a really, I think, difficult thing for us to wrap ourselves, you know, our heads around, which is that um, just because you see people suffering doesn't mean that the other side is the Goliath. The other side are the bad people here and have done something wrong. And so, you know, I do think that um, Israel, and for that matter, the West in general, has to think long and hard about how we're going to create a situation where we teach that message. And part of that is to just establish moral principles and be very open. These are moral principles. This is how we understand it. And not to be apologetic for those moral principles, which include the fact that we sometimes can justify killing and we can justify warfare and we can tolerate, meaning not something we like, but we can tolerate even uh, collateral damage, which tragically takes the life of non-combatants. The world has totally lost this understanding of why that's justified because we look at these images 
and we just say, oh, this is just terrible. How can this be? That's a really dangerous phenomenon, especially when the enemy side is going to use that type of sentiment as a shield to protect itself. So uh, this relates back to the general moral understanding of the moral imperatives here. And you know, one of the things I try to accomplish in the book, and I, and I wish others would be trying to accomplish in general as well, is to talk about morality. We don't like talking about morality and ethics. Like people get like scared. Oh, this is too intense or too difficult. And I know I don't think that's the case. We have to explain it in a clear way and give you know make it easy to understand the concepts we're trying to apply. But um, part of what it means to be a sophisticated and good society is to have a rich moral language which we can bring to the table. Absolutely, um, and I'm very. I mean, yeah, very grateful. To- for your book for that reason. Um, I'm going to move on to another buzzword that's come up a lot, collective punishment. Mm. I think that kind of goes in the same bucket as revenge or reprisal killings, at least in my brain. Um, But kind of given what we've discussed, there's quite broad democratic support um, for what happened on October 7th within Gaza. Um, And... It does seem to me that there there is a little bit of a sense of tit for tat, just kind of naturally. That's sort of the natural human instinct. But there's a lot of hullabaloo about it. There's sort of this innate sense that people have that I don't know if they can necessarily explain why, but there's an innate sense that people have that collective punishment is wrong. Yeah. Um, well, in terms of tit for tat, you know, I'm not really interested in that per se. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm really interested in just let's take the measures that are necessary for our security. And of course, that sometimes can mean, okay, well, you know, we don't need to do as much in order to bring security. And sometimes it means much more, as certainly the case right now in Gaza. And that, that's sort of the way we should think about it. Um, you know, I don't think that, I'm not interested in collective punishment because I'm really interested in just targeting those who are actively pursuing us, right? And then in terms of the other the enemy side, the combatants and those, you know, it's of course in a case like uh, Hamas, it's hard to always know who the civilians and who the non-civilian, you know, non-civilians are, the combatants are. But um, certainly those are the people that we should be targeting are the non are the, excuse me, the people certainly that we should be targeting are the combatants. But there is something tragic, which is really part of human nature, which we have to understand that other people who are part of that collective are going to suffer along with that as well. And that is a part of human nature. It's part of human nature when it comes to family life, and we suffer or we get rewarded or by the impact that goes on of what our parents or family members do, uh, just because of the way we, we, we live life. It's the way communities work, and it's certainly the way that nations work. Uh, there's a part of that collective identity which we can't escape. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we should then go and just shoot anyone in Gaza or Afghanistan or Iraq or anywhere other place in the world, or for that matter, that Hamas should be just attacking any random Israeli or Iranians should be attacking any random American or whatnot. I mean, that's inappropriate, right? There's no, I don't believe in collective punishment, but I do think that the reality of the world is one of collective identity, which you cannot fully escape. And so... Um, Understanding that as part of the realities of life and understanding that that's part of the realities of living in a collective and for better and for worse. I mean, many of us benefit and enjoy the collectives that we live in. We didn't necessarily do anything to deserve it. We might have been born into it. We might have never contributed much to our broader society, but we benefit greatly from it. Um, and But it goes both ways as well. So I, I think that's part of what's happening right now is you see this uh, from people suffering in Gaza. Uh, I, I, I really hope and believe that despite the fact that the polls and other indications show that there is a lot of support for Hamas, I hope and believe um, that there are others in Gaza who are terrified by what Hamas did, don't believe that Hamas represents them, and certainly even on a pragmatic level wishes Hamas wouldn't have done that and they would be at peace with Israel. Um, you know, we've had where I live in Israel, a number of sirens. It's not a pleasant experience of bombs coming in. And I sit there sometimes and imagine um, what are people in Gaza feeling when they're huddling 
and trying to take cover. And I, I hope that they, you know, the non-combatants there aren't being harmed as much as possible, certainly. And I hope that there are many of them there as well who are wondering, why do we get ourselves into this situation? Why did Hamas do what it did? And so I, I very much, and that brings us back to what I started off with, the biblical legacy of remembering all human beings created in the image of God is very important to keep in mind here. But at the same time, you know, I think the Bible is correct in understanding that we are part of collectives and we're going to share the fate of those collectives as well. Okay. Asymmetric warfare. If someone, I mean, I think the discussion of it in your book is very interesting. If someone says what Israel is engaging in right now is asymmetric warfare, is that true? Yeah, I think it's true, uh, <laughs> but I don't think it's a bad thing. Meaning, I don't think there's a moral problem with that. But you know, a lot of times people define asymmetric warfare in different ways, right? right. So, you know, in this case, I mean, it's interesting. Hamas, thirty thousand plus fighters, apparently much more sophisticated armaments than we realize. Certainly, the tunnel system is pretty remarkable, unfortunately, but really remarkable what they what they built there. Um, they're more or less an army. They more or less have a state. You know, but I, I don't think on a moral level it really matters so much whether you officially call them an army or not. But where it does matter, of course, is the tactics that they use in terms of fighting from civilian areas. That's important, and I think they bear responsibility for that. The hostages. This has been, I mean, it's in terms of kind of the the PR response. Hostage posters up everywhere. I drive in New Jersey, big billboards on the highways. Um, and even more amazingly, I mean, people tearing down posters of hostages' faces on American college campuses. Huge PR phenomenon, in addition, obviously, to the horrible human tragedy. It just kind of from a, I'll even say Machiavellian, uh, just to be controversial, standpoint, what role is that going to play? Because it just seems to me, if I were a terrorist, very unlikely that I would give up the upper hand by actually releasing the hostages. Oh, I think it's clear Hamas has no intention to really release all the hostages and they're going to use them as hum human shields. Um, that creates a real dilemma for Israel and real problem and it's probably hindering some of our military efforts right now. My own view on this is that there's one goal to this war, and that is to protect the citizens of Israel. And the, of course, part of those citizens included the hostages, who are the ones who are most endangered by Hamas. Uh, but, but they are part of the broader citizenry that we're trying to protect. And so, you know, when push comes to shove, I think we need to prioritize the broader military objective here. Um, but I don't like when people say, oh, Israel should just act as if all the hostages are dead and fight as if they're not alive. I think that's a really morally complex thing to say, to make statement to say. And I, I do appreciate Israel taking some precautions in order to protect them. Um, but I would not, for example, uh, end the war prematurely just for the sake of trying to bring back some hostages. And I say this um, knowing two of the parents um, uh, of two Israeli hostages, you know, personally, I mean, friends with them, and it's a horrific, horrific situation. And you're right, you know, it's a PR, it's interesting on it. It's obviously the matter that Israelis have promoted so much to highlight to the world of how bad Hamas is. But, you know, I always tell people, let's say Hamas had killed all these people, God forbid, right? and they would all be dead already. Would Israel be any less justified in fighting the war than it is? No, right? So um, I don't think that the hostages per se is why Israel is fighting this war, and we should keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to end us here, we're sort of reaching time. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, kind of based on what you've said, we've talked a little bit at the beginning of the conversation about ways in which Jewish war ethics are distinctive. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about if there are ways that Jewish war ethics should be an example, because it does seem to me like 
there's a fair amount of confusion right now about what war ethics are or what they should be. And that there's sort of this, I mean, maybe I just don't know enough about it and I shouldn't, at least to me, not well understood, <laughs> um, you know, kind of UN-based human rights approach that is broadly just sort of pretty anti-war and doesn't seem like it necessarily has clear-cut or practicable, I should say, advice for situations like the one that Israel is in. Yeah, I think you're right that the sort of the NGO approach or the approach that's sort of being promoted by a lot of so-called ethicists is to say that human rights always have to be prioritized. And so we can, and, and, you know, human rights are a great blessing to the world. It's a great political phenomenon. We should be appreciate that. But um, there are other values that always have to come into play when it comes to politics and many other issues. And I think that um, the Jewish tradition has a framework of thinking about this, which takes into mind a lot of different values and recognizes that there are different values that have to be kept in mind when you are thinking about these dilemmas beyond human rights. Human rights is an important value. The belief that human beings were created in the image of God is an important value that gives people human dignity, which should make us not want to kill people when they don't have to be killed. But there are other values as well, such as uprooting evil, such as prioritizing the safety and security of your own people um, that are really critical to keep in mind as well. And so I, I think in this respect, I, I don't know if Jew, the Jewish framework of thinking about this is unique per se. There have been certainly other traditions in the just war tradition that think about this as manner. But in our moment right now, I think it's a deeply needed model to understand that there's a multi-value framework when we think about the dilemmas, ethical dilemmas of war. And it's not just about winning or about, on the other side, of protecting human rights. You're going to have conflicting values, all of which make sense in the abstract, but you have to figure out how do we apply them in the given scenario that we're dealing with. In this respect, I think the Jewish tradition has a lot to teach the world. And my belief is that what I try to establish in the book is a framework which whether you're Jewish or not Jewish, whether you're a person of religious faith or not of faith, you can recognize these values and recognize the value of this framework in thinking about the difficult ethical, ethical dilemmas that Israel faces now, that America has faced many times, and I think the West in general is going to continue facing as the century goes along. Rabbi Brody, this has been absolutely enlightening. Thank you so much for your time. And your book will be linked in the show notes. So the listeners, please do check it out. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody on his book, The Ethics of Our Fighters. It's linked in the show notes. Please do check it out. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, there are three things that you can do to help us out. One, follow the podcast, leave us a comment, a review, leave us a rating. Those are all super helpful. Two, you should go to our website, jmp.princeton.edu. There, you can find out more about what we do here on Princeton's campus. You can also see all of our upcoming lectures and events. You can see recordings of all of our previous lectures and events. You can join our mailing list. Finally, you can find us on social media, which also gives immediate updates about upcoming events and podcast episodes. Our Twitter handle is at Madison Program, and we're also on Facebook and Instagram. So thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed, and I can't wait to see you next time here on Madison's Notes.